1: This is the item in the 45th Ward, a recreational dispensary, and I call for a roll call.
2: We got a a point of order here. Are we going to have debate or are we just moving into a roll call?
1: He asked for a roll call. so I think we've got to proceed with the roll call.
2: Well, here's a question then. If this is going to be the way we conduct business, then we'll not have the opportunity for debate.
0: Wait, are we live? Oh, my. So sorry, guys. I was listening to the latest city council meeting.
3: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I love that. That's from Dave Glowatz interview on Tuesday. Folks, you haven't heard it. Check it out. Uh, it really breaks down the city council and the dueling roll calls. You know, when do you have a roll call? Well, apparently whenever the the mayor wants to have a roll call. That's when you have the roll call. Stop asking so many questions Do you think this is a democracy. Sorry, David, I didn't mean to go on that.
0: No, no, that's fine. Go check out our latest interview with David Glowatz. It's available at chicagoreader.com forward slash Jorofsky or wherever else you download podcasts. Your Ben Jorofsky show for Thursday, June 10th is just moments away. But before we do this, we have to thank our sponsors, sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, our sponsors, as well as. Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky and our colleague, Maya duke Chicago reader ChicagoReader.com. Go check it out. And the Ben Jarofsky Show starts right now. It is Thursday, June 10th. And live from my apartment and his attic. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, two people named Miles: (laughs) Miles Porter and Miles Campflasen. And now your host, one person named Ben, <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky.
3: Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky, you are calling this. What would AOC do Thursday? And here's why. Time for hesitations through. No time to wallow in the mire. If we snooze, we only lose. And so it is with that preamble. I will announce who I will award the coveted Benny J endorsement for mayor of New York City. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why should a podcaster who specializes in Chicago podca- politics have to make an endorsement in the mayor's race in New York City? That's an excellent question. And let me answer it by blaming everything on the great, the legendary Dick Kay. Now that he's not here to defend himself. Dick Kay, of course, was the wonderful newsman for WMAQ for many, many years. And then he went on to set up shop as the Saturday afternoon host of a political talk show on a radio station called... Mm, Oh, I know the name, I know come the on. name You oh, know it, oh, come on I know, um, W, see you later No <laughs> W, get out of here WCPT How about that? Huh?
0: Good job, that? they fired you, that fired. sucks man
3: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Ben, can you please leave? Uh, anyway, back in the day, before they fired me, I used to listen to Dick all the time. I loved Dick K. I thought he was uh, just had a great personality, and I have not given him. He passed on a couple of weeks back. Really, Dennis and I did a little tribute to him. I haven't really given a full tribute, uh, but I'm uh, big fan of Dick K. I would listen to him all the time. i would be driving around uh, uh, and in uh, on on a Saturday afternoon. And the thing that struck me, stuck me from the start, he'd be taking questions from callers, and let's, you know, like – Stephen the Gold Coast. Come on, D. Do a Stephen the Gold Coast. Come on. One more time. Just for the old you to sake. Do
0: oh, all right. Impressions of the listeners. I know how to not get a few listeners on the program. Uh Stephen the Um. Now come... <laughs> come on, Ben. What's your problem? I'm smart. You're not. Come on.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and David Hoffman estates. Come on, D. David oh. Hoffman estate. Come on. Let's go.
0: He was a sweet man. Oh, hi. Hi. Ha! Hey, Ben!
3: Some would say your Dave and Hoffman Estates uh, is drifting into your Governor Pritzker. Okay, saying.
0: you're having me do this. Now I'm getting critiques. Uh, and, and finally, my
3: favorite, I love them dearly, Ivan and DuPage. Hey, brother! Ben! <laughs> what's up, dude? <laughs> love you, Ivan. You were a great guy. Anyway... These guys would call up, and no matter what the topic, no matter how far it was removed from Chicago or the Chicago area for uh, Dick K's orbit, he had an opinion on it. And I'd be like driving in my car thinking, dang, Dick Kay is the world's smartest man. How can one man have so many opinions on so many different things? And then I got a job hosting a talk show on WCU Later. I didn't last as long as Dick K did, but that's not the point. The point is suddenly I had to have an opinion on everything. Having an opinion was, having no opinion was not an option. And this was a shock because I come from the Chicago School of Journalism. where you don't have an opinion or you (laughs) so shield your opinion that you need a Geiger counter to detect it. I once had a Chicago journalist on the show and I will not name this journalist. I will not even give it away with the pronoun. I'll just say this Chicago journalist came on the show and said, quote, they told me you were going to ask my opinion and I'm not giving it to you. Anyway, when you have your own show, you can't duck and dodge. You have to have an opinion. And so, since this New York City mayoral's race is the buzz of the talk, talk of the town and political circles, I must ask myself, who would I vote for if I lived in New York City? That's a hard question. Mostly because I really don't know that much about each candidate, just know little things that I read in the newspaper, and I've long learned not to believe everything you read in the newspaper, which is kind of weird coming from a guy who spent most of his life writing for newspapers. When you have to make a tough decision, the first thing you do is you filibuster. You talk about other things in the hopes that people won't notice that you're avoiding making a tough decision. So first of all, you start by saying, when is the election? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's the New York uh, Democratic and Republican primaries are June 22nd, and the general election is November uh, 2nd, I think it is. Then you talk about the unique form of voting. It'll be ranked choice, where you prioritize your choices, resulting in an instant runoff. Then you go on a tangent about how that's different than it is in Chicago. In Chicago, we have actual runoffs. Then you give an example. For instance, a bunch of people ran for mayor in t- two thousand and nineteen, and the top two vote getters were Tony Parkwinkle and Lori Lightfoot. Then you mention who you voted for. Well, I voted for Lori. Then you mention how about well everyone makes fun of you for voting for Lori. Okay, Jay Marie, stop making fun of me. <laughs> Lori told me everything I wanted to hear. All right, I was like Bambi eating out of her hand, and then you do a ba- imitation of Bambi eating out of your hand. <laughs> that's my imitation of bambi a eating a brand my hand.
0: new impression right there in the catalog <laughs> it, it'd be more like
3: just think of a deer eating out of your hand that's the deer swallowing <clears throat> then you take a break to play a song by michael girardi that's the story from the editorial Bow, wow wow and you stalled so much time you don't have time to really take the deep dive on who you're voting for so you just sort of rush it out Uh, Eric Adams, because I thought it'd be a good idea to have a black policeman who's dealt with criminal justice from all sides to try to rethink policing and criminal justice, sort of like Nixon going to China. Well, it's a theory anyway. But then I saw that AOC endorsed Maya Wiley, and so since I'm a lefty, uh, and as all lefties, I do whatever AOC tells me, I am wavering. I I might endorse Maya. And suddenly it's time to go on break. And so you go to break by saying, We've got a great show today, everybody's. It's Miles Day on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Miles Porter talking sports, a little baseball. I had to bring him on to talk some baseball with him. Uh, and Miles Conflassen, uh, that's hard to say, from in these times, in these times journalists talking lefty politics. And he's the one who put the New York City uh, mayor election in my mind. It was like we were talking about what are we going to talk about? Hey, I've been talking about the New York City mayoral election. I've been kind of following it. Uh, And AOC as well. I've been thinking a lot about AOC and the power she has through social media and how many and how she just like a a tweet from AOC uh, will get lefties like following it. You know, they just said that'll help them make up their mind. I guess I'll look at the bright side. It's kind of hard to know what the issues of the day are. So what's AOC have to say? So that and all kinds of political talk uh, from about lefty politics and Democratic politics from Miles Conflason. First let's just start with uh, a little talk about sports. So we're going to bring on our uh, baseball expert Miles Porter. Miles, welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: All right. Uh There were three things I wanted to talk to you about briefly on baseball. And I just want to say, uh, Jim Coogan out there, if you're listening, we're going to do a Sox Cubs breakdown uh, right before the uh, city series. Uh, You, Jim Coogan, will represent the White Sox and Miles, although who protests that he likes both teams, will represent the Cubs. uh, And we'll have a lot of fun uh, making fun of both teams in the city of Chicago. But before (laughs) we do that, three things I want to talk to you about, about baseball. Uh, one is the fact that uh, there's this outrage that they're doctoring the baseballs, Mm -hmm. self pitchers are getting away with murder Two, the theory collective bargaining gets into union rights um, by some players that uh, baseballs, the owners change the way they make the baseballs, depending on who's up for salary. Interesting little theory there. Uh, And then uh, finally your thoughts on the, um, The new uniforms, of the Sox and the Cubs, the Cubs go with a Wrigleyville model, and the Sox have a Southside model. I have strong opinions on this, even though I really don't have any sense of style. Uh, I will uh, just tease it by saying uh, the Cubs look horrible, and I cannot believe they call themselves Wrigleyville. What a disgrace. But anyway, we'll we'll go to that last. We'll start with the doctoring of the baseballs. This is a huge uh, issue in the world of baseball right now. Uh, Miles, you've played and you coached. So explain to people the significance of allowing pitchers to put kinds of like salve on a baseball. What does it do and how does that give a pitcher an advantage over a hit
2: Yeah. So when it comes to, uh, you know, doctoring the baseballs, uh, you know, you know, one of the main things when it comes to professional baseballs is, uh, you know, pitchers having a better grip on their pitches um, and, you know, creating more spin rate. The more a ball spins, the more that breaking pitch is going to move. If it's a slider, it's going to move maybe a few inches over. Uh, if it's a curveball, it's going to break down even more. So what? If, so what? These uh, what these substances do is it, it helps enhance uh, the pitcher's performance, specifically with breaking pitches. Um, you know, they are throwing fastballs a lot harder now. It does help with that, but from the research that I've done, uh, you know a lot of a lot of these curveballs, changeups and cutters, they're moving a lot more along with the fastball's velocities going up. That spin rate is causing the ball to move more, creating a, uh, you know, a scenario much more harder for a hitter to, you know, make contact with the ball or, you know, you know, make solid contact in general.
3: So, why is this just coming to everybody's attention now? Is it because the batting averages are so low or is it because people are finally confessing uh, what they're doing to the baseballs?
2: Well, you know, I think uh, this is this is something that's been going on in the MLB for for years now. This isn't really anything new. I, I do think a lot of it credits to uh, you know hitters. Hitters are struggling right now. Uh, you know, we're we're seeing some of the lowest batting averages in the history of Major League Baseball in the modern era. Um, how how the commissioner is going about that? You know, I don't exactly I don't exactly agree with it, but I do uh, recognize that we do have a bit of a, a dilemma here on our hands. And, um, yeah, yeah. A, a lot, a lot of hitters are having a tough time right now at the plate and the commissioner, he's very, he's very fixated on hitters hitting. So, uh, you know, he's pointing out this issue, uh, really the MLB is really cracking down on this. Uh, a few weeks ago, Gio Gallego so the Cardinals had his hat confiscated and switched mm-hmm. with Mike Shield of the manager of the Cardinals. Uh, during a Cardinals White Sox game because he was suspected to be using a substance uh, in his hat. So, you know, this is something (laughs) that is, (laughs) uh, this is something that the commissioner is really pushing towards right now. And, you know, it's all right. So this,
3: this, this brings up uh, the obvious question. I've been following baseball for many years and uh, it just seems like baseball more than any other sport. uh, How do I put this? Encourages cheating. So the, yeah. I can't think in, in basketball, the the sport I follow a lot. I can't think of cheating going on in basketball. Like in baseball, I could think of Sammy Sosa with the cork bat, Gaylord Perry, a great pitcher with a spitball, which uh, is gets to the point you, the advantage a pitcher will have uh, by making the ball <laughs> the ball awkward. The Houston Astros stealing signs with a camera that's in center field, and then like alerting the. Uh, uh, the batter by banging a um, trash can with a bat. I mean, baseball players are always cheating on, of course, steroids. This, this, I mean, 20, 30 years of steroids. Yeah, yeah. Baseball players are always cheating. And it seems like the culture of, of the game is to encourage cheating until it gets so obvious that they have this moment of embarrassment where they, say they're cracking down and then like in a few months the cheating goes back is baseball different or unique in your opinion miles having played all these sports and that encourages cheating
2: absolutely absolutely there's so many individual uh routines that go into baseball that are a little bit different from so many sports and i look at basketball and football they're using one ball okay and and in baseball they're, they're probably going through like through 50 like 30 50 baseballs probably more than that each in every game and that's not including uh the bullpen that's not including batting practice that's not like like there's so many different groups of uh baseballs that have so many different roles for these teams and games that would throughout all these baseballs you know 50 to 60 of them are bound to get uh, doctored in some sort of way there's so many routines that uh, these pitchers are doing they'll put it in their hat they'll put it in their glove uh, they might have something in their mouth and they'll lick their fingers and they'll pick the ball up and start you know messing around with it in their glove it's just it's so much more of a uh, a sport where you, you're able to get away with this stuff uh, a lot more under the radar compared to football or basketball.
0: Yeah,
3: and they do seem to encourage. Like, well, wow, this guy's really a, a smart baseball player because he's just getting away with cheating. Uh, <laughs> speaking of cheating and speaking of doctrine baseballs, there was a theory. it's almost a, it's a labor union uh, theory, collective bargaining theory that I saw put out by uh, some baseball players not too long ago. So uh, every year there's a debate over whether the baseballs that are used in major league. Uh, for the season have been doctored in a certain way by the manufacturer, uh, according to the dictates of major league baseball. And sometimes the baseballs are, are, constructed in such a way that they'll come off the bat harder so the batters will have an advantage and sometimes they'll are constructed in such a way that they'll come off the bats uh softer so the pitchers have an advantage uh and uh so every year you watch as like there's some days years there's more homers and they go well they've doctored the baseball to give the batters an advantage so i just saw this theory and i saw i had to ask miles about this one And this is this brings together my love for politics uh, and union organizing, et cetera, a theory that's being put forth by baseball players is that Major League Baseball doctors the balls according to which players are going to be up for a contract in the upcoming year. So if there's a lot of pitchers who are coming up for contracts in the upcoming year, they'll doctor the baseball in such a way to give the batters the advantage. And so when the pitchers go before the owners uh, to negotiate their contracts, their statistics will be lower, the worse. And so they will have less of bar- bargaining power with the uh, the owners. Conversely, in this instance, next year, there's a lot of batters, Javi Baez being one, who uh, Chris Bryant being another from the Cubs, who are coming before uh, their contracts are expiring. They'll be negotiating a contract. So, oh, my God, isn't that a coincidence? Uh, the baseballs <laughs> are coming off the bat like, with, with less velocity. It's hurting the batter. And so Javi Baez will have lower numbers and Chris Bryant would have lower numbers when they go to negotiate. Miles Porter, your thoughts on this. Do you think Major League Baseball is doctoring the baseballs in order to be cheap in negotiations with its players?
2: You know, I think I think each year the the baseballs are definitely uh, being uh, buffed or nerfed. In different scenarios, uh, as you can see in 2019, some of the most home runs in a season in total. And then you look at 2021. I mean, there's so many players that are struggling. I don't. I don't think it's directly linked to um, specifically players and their contracts coming up in like arbitration. I think it is the indecisiveness and incompetence of the commissioner of baseball. Uh, he doesn't know what he wants to do. He wants hitters to hit more, Uh, you know, but you know, now we have these issues with these baseballs. So he wants to consider moving the mound back like, like an inch or something. Um, I really just think it is the commissioner not being very decisive on what exactly he wants out of the MLB right now. He's very, he's very, uh you know, he's very taken away by, you know, fans, fans looking and fans watching and everything and all of that. But, uh, that's taking away from what's actually going on on the field. I think it's more of a, how can we get more fans and how can we make this game more entertaining? Let's try. Let's try uh, making the baseballs lighter. Let's try making the baseballs heavier. Let's move the mound back. Let's take away the, you know, the intentional walk with four pitches. Just this wave at the umpire, say four, he'll go to first. Let's limit the amount of mound visits. I think it's him constantly. Trying to figure out ways to make this game a go faster and b be more appealing to the common baseball fan Mm -hmm. and bringing in new fans. That is where I think the majority of this comes from. All
3: right, Uh, I'm actually kind of leading with you on that one. That conspiracy theory. I I need more evidence of the. It's not that I cannot believe that baseball would do something like this. I mean, come on, this is baseball. Their legacy in terms of being behind the times on every freaking issue of of importance, starting with whether they would even let black people play the, the game, uh, is known. So they're capable of anything. I just need more evidence of this. We're going to close with this, Miles, uh, the Sox and the Cubs major league baseball has a new promotion strategy where they allow uniforms for a brief time, uh, that, uh, are sort of related to the cities that the teams come from. They're following basketball, did this as well. Uh, And so the Sox and the Cubs unveiled their uniforms this week. Uh, The White Sox says Southside across the front. And um, the Cubs say Wrigleyville. I have strong opinions about this (laughs) because you're (laughs) supposed to have strong opinions about everything when you have a podcast. Your opinions about the new uniforms, the city uniforms. Go ahead, Miles.
2: Ugh. Um, <laughs> I love what the White Sox did with their uniforms. I feel like it's uh, so in tune with the culture of not only like where they're located, uh, but really with like a lot of areas in Chicago as well. I think they're really getting tapped with uh, specifically like that youth of Chicago. That's what those jerseys showed me. I see so many of my friends on Instagram, Facebook and Snapchat wanting to buy the jerseys, posting them on their stories and posting them in general on social media, being like, yeah, I got this jersey or yeah, I want that jersey. Okay, the Cubs, okay. They, they're talking about how they want to represent seventy the 77 neighborhoods of Chicago, but it says Wrigleyville on the on the jersey. Uh no, I don't like them. I love the Cubs. I really do. I'm a diehard Cubs fan, but I'm also brutally honest with them just because I love them so much. the jerseys suck. Okay. They don't look good. Uh, I don't like I don't like the dark blue, then with the light blue. Granted, with the players took the pictures of them and they posted on Instagram, they all look great. Jock Peterson, Wilson Contreras, Rizzo, Brian, all of you look great. Hayward, you all look great. This isn't against you guys. I don't like the jersey. That being said, I'm still probably going to buy one.
3: Yeah, I said that being said, he's still going to buy one. I wouldn't buy that Wrigleyville jersey for all. I I, I wouldn't wear the Wrigleyville jersey. I I feel like a column coming on about this one, uh, Miles. But just Wrigleyville does not even exist. It's a marketing tool coined by some real estate agent. Yeah, to try yeah, to yeah. make money selling property around Glavie. It's not even the name of the neighborhood. Lake it's Lake like Beach. everything else the Ricketts <laughs> do is just like promoting the Ricketts, right? Yeah, yeah. Can't you guys just stop once?
2: You right, know, right, right. Uh,
3: so that's my problem with the Cubs. I, I, I'm struggling with the Cubs, Miles. I, I've been rooting for the Cubs since 1966. Yeah, but it, <laughs> every every day it's something. I just did a story the other day about a uh, electioneering a. Uh, Voter suppression uh, by the Republicans, and I got into how in Nebraska they, um, the, the the Republicans and Democrats came together to come up with a commission that would be nonpartisan to to draw maps, and it was vetoed by Pete Ricketts, who was the governor of Nebraska, who's one of the Ricketts who owns the Cubs. This is politics. It's like, oh no, another Ricketts behaving badly, and yeah. uh, it makes it really hard for me. To continue rooting for the for the Cubs,
2: it's such a different demographics of culture with the Cubs and the White Sox. You go to a Cubs game, you, you you physically see there's a difference in the type of fan that's there compared to when you go to a Sox game. It's just it's just different, and I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but you know I think because the Sox have a Let's be honest, they have a more diverse fan base. I think they understand that very well, and they've always understood that along with the Bulls as well. And I think with the Cubs, they don't understand as much as the White Sox do, just because they don't have that demographic like the Sox do. It's kind of a more one-sided demographic that they have. Granted, they have Cubs fans from all over the world, including me, myself, being a young African-American male who would love to play for them someday. This is just the truth. And I think that has a big, uh, you know, role in, you know, why we have these, whatever whatever these City Connect jerseys are the Cubs had compared to the Sox. All
3: right, fair enough. And by the way, don't hold against Miles, Cubs, uh, Ricketts, whatever I say about him, all right? The guy can hit the hell out of the ball. He should give him a tryout at least. Uh, maybe I'll change <laughs> my attitude. If Miles Porter's played for the Cubs, I'd probably soften my stance on the Ricketts family. Uh, <laughs> Miles, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, and uh, we'll be talking to you real soon when you come on for that Cubs Sox show, probably in probably next month in July. All right,
2: awesome. Look forward to it. Thank you for having me, Benny.
3: All right, very good. That's the great Miles Porter. Now we're going to go shift over to the other Miles, Miles Conflasson, Pride and Joy of the South Side of Chicago. He's not wearing a Wrigleyville T-shirt. He's wearing a South Side T-shirt, uh, and uh, longtime White Sox fan. And both of us, coincidentally, will be at the Sox game tonight. And that's a small Where We're not together, but we will both be in the stadium at the same time. Correct, Miles?
1: That's right. We'll be nicely socially distanced out there. uh, I I don't have my uh, Southside jersey yet, unfortunately. I think they're still sold out. So maybe I'll pick one up at the game. Do you
3: have an opinion one way or another about the Cubs jerseys, the ones that say Wrigleyville on the front? It's ugly
1: as hell. I mean, <laughs> especially yeah. next to that Southside jersey, and I mean, you know, the Rickets, There's that. They're like, you know, they're they were doing fundraisers for Trump at the Wrigley Field and stuff. And also, I mean, what's going on with the vaccination rates? Jake Arrieta, they gotta, they gotta, you know, get in shit. The 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 Sox have been at the eighty five percent rate since since like May or something, and you know, Cubs still aren't there. I got a problem.
3: Yeah, I have a. This is we, this was not on our list of topics, but I've been struggling with this. So, get your thoughts on this. Base uh, athletes that don't get the shot. I saw that there was. A, this is an issue for the Bears as well. I just saw this. Uh, the, the golfer last week, uh, Rom, who had a step down from an, uh, on Saturday, the day before, he was in first place in a tournament. He had to leave the tournament because he tested positive for COVID. Obviously, he hadn't got the shot. What? Like, what is with the athlete? I understand. Okay, I get it. There's a lot of MAGA people out there got their doubts about getting the shots. But if your livelihood is directly linked to your ability to stay uh, on the field or, or to just stay eligible, you would think that automatically would put aside your concerns about the shop, which by the way, have not been warranted by any, th- any evidence of people getting sick or damaged from it. Uh, and also, what about the owner's uh, just saying, making it a mandate, your thoughts on all these things, Miles?
1: I, I think in that particular environment, a mandate might actually make sense because, you know, you're putting the health of your fellow teammates and as well, kind of the fans, uh, at risk. And it's, you know, very simple just to take the shot and be put in a better position, both, In terms of safety and in terms of, you know, everybody having a certain level of trust and comfort. I mean, that's the issue in these uh, bullpens is that they aren't allowed to, um, you know, take off their masks in the bullpen. They haven't reached that 85% threshold that impacts the team, you know, and how you interact. I think that there's rules of governing going out to dinner with your teammates, how many people can be in a hotel room. There's all these various things that, you know, most teams now have, that threshold. But yeah, the Cubs not being there is a, is a real problem. So I think that it might be a place where, um, you know, commissioners or managers might need to step in. No, you
3: know, I just, I like to point out uh, uh, something about the reaction of, of MAGA to this. So when uh, Colin Kaepernick takes a knee uh, in a game uh, saying that this is part of his personal belief uh, regarding the uh, relationship between cops and the black community. Mag is outraged. Uh, he's banned from the sport effectively. Uh, and it's like respect the national anthem. Your personal beliefs should not uh, be greater than the, the whole, the rest of the league. Uh, and uh, so, but when here we are in a health crisis uh, and a player says, well, I have a personal belief against taking a vaccine. Which I'm not even quite sure what the personal belief is. It's suddenly we have to respect that, even if it puts the rest of the players uh, at risk. Or if you're a fan, it puts your team at risk because suddenly, you know, your star hitter is out because he's positive, tested positive because he didn't take the vaccine. So, very curious, uh, different reaction to the personal beliefs of players in sports, Miles miles are you there all right yeah we lost him briefly for a minute all right let's shift from sports and we'll move on to politics uh the th- you have like four things i want to get through with you uh just on our list today let's start with uh aoc uh Congresswoman ocasio cortez has been on my mind a lot lately i've started uh noticing miles the, the obvious the huge impact she has i was joking about this at the outset saying i'm i've decided i'm going to hold off and making an endorsement in the New York city mayor race uh, because uh, uh, AOC has come in with an endorsement of somewhat different than the one I was, I was leaning toward uh, that was spoofing the, the big impact she has um, with folks of the lefty persuasion. Let's talk a little about AOC, her influence and how uh, she uh, uses it in various races.
1: Well, you can see it most impressively in New York, I think, that she has helped to now consolidate some of uh, the left flank and the progressive movement there uh, behind Maya Wiley, which was unexpected, I'd say, considering where the race stood even just a few weeks ago. Um, You'll remember in 2020, you know, she came out and endorsed Bernie Sanders and helped to revitalize his campaign after that heart attack. um, And you know, the squad came along with her and it really injected new life into that campaign. Obviously, you know, didn't work out perfectly for Bernie. And uh, I don't have huge hopes for Maya Wiley either. But um, so I wouldn't call her, you know, a kingmaker, queenmaker or what have you necessarily. But I think it's just exemplifies how big of a role she plays uh, in the party. And, you know, she's not just dictating where people should go. I think that she is also reflecting, in a sense, how movement organizations are operating. I think that's her role as a movement politician. You know, when she came into office, Corbin Trent, who worked for her and was part of Justice Democrats. He um, he announced, he said, look, she came here, she was elected by a movement, and she's going to govern as a representative of a movement. And I think that that's unique, but there are certain politicians now that are following in that mold. Um, I think, you know, in Chicago, you look at the city council, uh, similarly to AOC, there was uh, Carlos Rosa was elected um, back in 2015, I believe. And uh, he was the lone kind of lefty on the council for a while, much like AOC was um, in Congress. And then, you know, the movement that she kind of, you know, normalized that people can speak out, people can be, you know, uh, firebrands in the legislative body and still have success and rely on um, individual donations rather than corporate money in order to fund their campaigns. And so much like, uh, here in Chicago where, you know, a group of democratic socialists got elected, um, in the most recent round of, uh, elections, the squad came and now is, uh, backing AOC up and they're all representing this kind of more movement oriented, uh, politics. So I think that it's, it's unique and it's an example of what can, uh, happen, not just when you have somebody who is as skilled, uniquely skilled as AOC is, but also somebody who can, um, bring the movement with them to the halls of
3: power. Well, I can think of three issues in the last month, but particularly two in this last week, where uh, tweets uh, from uh, AOC have had an impact, I think, politically. The, the one most recent one is um, has to do with Manchin and the filibuster, where she talked about uh, dark money that may be influencing Manchin. The other one, of course, uh, the Kamala Harris quote uh where kamala uh, vice president harris was in guatemala we talked about this yesterday she said don't come here uh and aoc forcefully came out uh, denouncing that uh, very quickly uh, after she made it and then uh she was part of the larger chorus of opposition to uh, israel in this country when israel was pounding gaza uh, earlier this month or earlier this last month uh, and so in a sense uh sort of articulating the leftist point of view on that one. So let's just take it point by point. Let's start with uh, uh, her tweets about the filibuster and Manchin. Um, how, how much do you think she's shaping the dialogue uh, on that particular issue?
1: Well, she's the has the most uh, Twitter followers of anybody in the House of Representatives, far more than Nancy Pelosi, and uh, who is the ostensible leader of the House. Now, people will say Twitter is not real life, um, Pelosi herself has kind of demeaned that and said they have a you know, Twitter following or whatever and you know, kind of written it off. But you're completely right to point out that while Twitter might not be legislating, um, shaping the narrative and creating media storylines is uh, incredibly important. In uh, not just media, but in politics itself. It's what people then get asked about. You know, it's what then they go on MSNBC, any of these Democrats, and they have to respond to something AOC tweeted about because suddenly everybody's talking about it and it is shaping uh, the dialogue and the debate. And, you know, the filibuster is a good example of that. I think that it I remember, you know, under Obama, for one thing, he had 60 votes for a while. So he didn't even need to use the filibuster, even though they didn't do all that much in those first four months of uh, the Obama administration. But after that, there wasn't a huge push to get Democrats to uh, get rid of the filibuster to pass massive, bold um, legislation. And now there is. And I think it's in large part. It's not solely due to AOC or any individual member, but that's just part of how you can use that megaphone on social media in order to impact change. And then also look at the, you know, Green New Deal. We talk about the Green New Deal all the time now. It's, you know, becomes part of, you know, it's a lightning rod on the right, of course. They want to use it to demean uh, everything that's going on in terms of climate action and jobs programs. But it's shaping how the infrastructure package is being talked about and, what is in it i mean that was i think in terms of the bernie biden task forces that was one of the climate task force that aoc was on was one of the most successful and actually coming out with now plans that the obama administration's putting forward that reflects that so i think you know green new deal that's that's aoc's thing you know she was uh she before she even uh, was seated in her Uh, congressional seat. She went to a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office to protest with the Sunrise Movement for a Green New Deal, and now it's everywhere. So I think you can't really overstate how big of an impact from the filibuster on down she's had. Do
3: you find yourself uh, as an editor in these times, like articles will come in, uh, articles will be assigned because of issues uh, that AOC uh, will uh, tweet out in other words, where she has a direct influence on how you're covering the news?
1: Yeah, I, I think that it uh, is just part of that larger dynamic that I just talked about. I mean, I am I focus on stuff that's happening among the left anyway, so I'm more inclined to figure out what AOC is talking about. I mean, she has injected a working class centered politics and a social movement centered politics into the mainstream, but we'd probably be covering that stuff. Anyway, um, wherever it was happening, um, I think what's more impressive is that she's got people, editors at CNN and editors at Politico and, you know, the New York Times that are reading her tweets that are then assigning stories based on it. And then it just becomes the national news. It's not just what In these Times is talking about. It You know, it's hitting the big leagues, so, so to speak. So I think that that's it, more where her the importance of her influence is not to you know demean my publication i think actually we were the one we did a big q a with her before she got elected um because we uh and nobody was talking about her then you know joe people forget joe crowley was going to be the next speaker of the house he was next in line he was one of the most powerful democrats in congress and even that, not to you know uh take shots at the Working Families Party, but the New York Working Families Party endorsed Joe Crowley. A lot of people didn't want to take the risk of lifting up this upstart that nobody thought could win before she won. And now that she did, obviously she's had this huge outside impact. And I think, you know, in these times did play a role in that. And I certainly have personally written stories about AOC. I actually wrote one for Jacobin Magazine a few, a couple years ago, maybe it wasn't that long ago, called uh, They're Not uh, just mad at AOC, they're scared of her, um, and it was actually about the Democratic establishment because you know they're always taking shots at her. They've stopped a little bit; they're playing a little bit nicer now. But early on, um, they were pretty mean to her, you know, and and, and just try to isolate her and not be a friend. And I think it's not just because they didn't like what she was doing; it's because they see that she represents a different type of politics, and it is directly in conflict with the traditional norms in, you know, the corporate mainstream, the Democratic Party. And that's um, that's had a big impact. And I think that the success of the squad and all these new primary challengers running across the country is just proof of that.
3: Uh, you no, know, you make a very good point, and I didn't mean in any way uh, to demean lefty writers, lefty publications, uh, and Miles knows that. Uh, I come from one, <laughs> so it's like, uh, you're self-hating lefty, Ben, uh, and uh, so I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, these are things uh, like the in these Times and the Jacobins and the readers of the world and the village voices, whatever. The lefty publications have been discussing forever, and all of a sudden, you have a, this media superstar, AOC, come around, and – it's like she becomes the personification of these issues for better or for worse. Uh, mostly better, I think, because uh, she's getting attention, national attention. People are paying attention to like issues of like the green new deal. Uh, I could just imagine if like the issue of inequity in Chicago, which is my, been my beef for all these years, got the kind of attention that the green new deal did, you know what I'm saying? So yes, I, I get you. It's, Lefties are out there working the field, so to speak. And then, um, AOC comes in and she's a superstar. Uh, and now everybody's focused on it. People are trying to figure out where they uh, stand on that issue. Uh, so what are your, what do you think is a, do are there any downsides to this as a leftist, as journalists left a leftist journalist miles, you see any downside to, uh, a handful of high profile, uh, media stars suddenly reflecting the left
1: yeah i think that there's always the concern that you know it will go to their heads or they'll you know be won over by the um you know the uh, attempts to co-opt them by various you know interest groups but we haven't really seen that so far i mean AOC has been in an office for a while and there's friendly debates about issues. You know, she might not be completely um, on the same page as some of the, the left. And I think that that's fair to have those discussions and questions of accountability and what have you. Um, But it would have been very easy for somebody like AOC, who ran with the support of uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, to, once she got into office and got asked all these questions about Democratic Socialism, you know, being called a radical and all that stuff, to kind of, if not disavow it, at least say, ah, that's just one thing and, you know, pivot completely. But she hasn't really done that. I mean, she just did an interview with DSA's in-house publication like last month, a very long interview about issues and strategy and things. So she's definitely maintaining that and helping to normalize that kind of politics. Um, The downsides, I think, are just, you know, somebody could become a megalomaniac or something, but it's just uh, incredible to see how she's used her platform to, um, you know, both bring in people to give them Trainings on how to like apply makeup on Instagram, you know, or play Among Us, the uh, video game, and get millions of viewers and kind of bring them in. But then use that as a way to introduce them to some of these more uh, political uh, left-wing issues, and you know, do it on a very uh, accessible way. You know, she talks about universal health care and illuminating student debt because she was a bartender and who didn't have health care, and she's like you know, has tons of student debt. So she's lived, that has that lived experience that my generation has experienced. We came of political lives during a financial crash and Iraq war and, you know... Uh, Course, student loan crisis, healthcare crisis. So, you know, she's very reflective of that. And I think that helps to um, ground her. Not to be too fawning. I mean, there's plenty of things that I've been like, I wish she would have said something different or better or what have you. But all in all, it's pretty um, more than I think a lot of us could have expected. Now, that doesn't change the political dynamics in Washington. Um, but in terms of popularizing the left and its ideas, it's pretty good.
3: Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's talk about this or her latest uh, uh, intervention and move away from uh, AOC and talk about the race itself, mayor of New York City. Uh, I always I've, I have an interest in New York politics, even though I've never lived in New York, uh, just because some of the characters are so interesting. That's part of that. Uh, but also uh, to one degree or another, I feel that uh, where New York goes in terms of its municipal elections, other cities will follow to a certain degree. And this goes back to the sixties. when John Lindsay was running and I thought about, and he was like a counter force to the big city mayor tactics of our own Richard J Daly, uh, in, uh, in Chicago here. Uh, and so New York, uh, is emerging from eight years of Bill de Blasio who ran as, uh, I was, sort of like the opposite of Rahm Emanuel. Bill uh, Bill de Blasio came, I think, when he was elected in 2013, I want to say, which was two years after Rahm. And Rahm, of course, was mayor 1%. Bill de Blasio was running very much uh, as a progressive and uh, the opposite of Rahm Emanuel. And as a lefty, I was uh, emboldened from afar, when de Blasio was victorious because I said, okay, now we'll see what everybody called them progressives, what a progressive does uh, running a big city. Here we are eight years later. Uh, Your thoughts, Miles, on the legacy of Bill de Blasio? Uh,
1: Yeah, it was not exactly what we had, uh, many of us had had hoped for. We can just, you know, kind of say that much. Although I got to give, him some credit and the Blasio administration for really trying to go out on a high note here, you know, and they're, um, as the city is getting, I was actually just in New York a couple of weeks ago, and that's when they started to lift uh, those rest restrictions. And the city is more livable. I mean, they've created, for one thing, I, so this is a gripe I, of course, have that I just got to get off my chest. They have, uh, <laughs> they've actually kind of transformed the urban landscape there because they've allowed, um, and de Blasio's administration has done this, they've allowed these businesses, bars and restaurants and other businesses to build out patios so that they can have more outdoor space in the parking that's in front of the storefronts. So if you walk down the streets of New York, it's like a city transformed because there's all these unique, interesting structures that have been built out across the, the streets. Chicago, we got this privatization parking meter deal, and so we can't do anything. You know, and so it's 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 just sad. You know that the Chicago looks exactly the same. There's a few weird like pods that some restaurants built outside, but New York is completely different. So I got to give De Blasio credit for that and just kind of pulling back some of the restrictions on nightlife. Now there's you know people be using public space uh, throughout the day. Now there's you know, been some fights over that because the NYPD is enforcing their own rules around this stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't think that de Blasio was willing to take on corporate power in this, in the city of New York. And that is fundamentally the issue, you know, real, the real estate development lobby and, um, finance capital. And those are what make, you know, New York city, this financial powerhouse, but they also kind of strangle the life out of, the you know working class of the city, so to speak, because they keep on leading to higher costs and lower wages, and the inability for, and, and ultimately just uh, establishing austerity. And I don't think we've seen that fundamentally change. There has been some progress. I mean, he did get universal pre-K going, and there have been, of course, some policy uh successes but um, you know I don't think that in terms of either you know of those issues trying to rein in finance or the real estate lobby um, or even excessive policing that we can give uh, a grades to build a Blasio
3: yeah well I think of uh, on the first front uh, the disappointment I feel uh, to your point uh, was uh, symbolized by, his and Cuomo teaming up to offer the world to Amazon to move his corporate headquarters there. And they were part, of course, of that insanity. It just seems so distant from where we are now as we are emerging from the pandemic. I always like to remind people it was, what, two or three years ago that uh, mayors and, and states throughout the country were uh, just offering obscene amounts of money to the world's richest corporation to come and set up a headquarters in their city with all these uh, inflated promises of benefits for the city that that really were just, I think, made up numbers, uh, like fantasies being spun by PR people. We in Chicago and uh, Illinois uh, were also taken by it. Rauner and Rahm were offering untold billions. They never did tell us how much. The whole thing was shrouded in secrecy. We were, they literally told us, stop asking questions about this. This is too important. Uh, to get Amazon to come to our city. So we're, and Amazon has asked us not to reveal any of the details. So stop asking us. It's, when I think about it, Miles, it's just, it's like how blatantly it was just a giveaway without any strings attached, without any oversight, without any transparency. Can you imagine if they had a similar attitude about negotiating a contract with the teachers union? shut up. It's too important to give the peace with the teachers. We'll let you know what we're giving them when we're done. You know, it's just, and I mean, that was where we're at. And the Blasio, I mean, he wasn't unique in this regards, but I had higher hopes. He was part of that chorus. Uh, and conversely it was AOC who spoke up when she was elected right. against, she's the one who got toppled that deal in New York city when she spoke up against it and uh, all the others politicians started running, uh, to catch up with her. But, um, that was my uh, disappointment with bill de Blasio. And, uh, I'm just wondering, are there any other official, do you, first of all, do you share that disappointment? And also, can you think of any other politicians, local leaders in a position of authority who handled it differently, handled corporate handouts differently than De Blasio?
1: Well, I don't know. There's uh, if there's other um, big cities that uh, Amazon was supposedly considering in their sweepstakes. What a what a real national shame that whole ordeal was. Uh, everybody groveling at the feet of you know the richest guy in the world to uh, come and grace them with uh, his company's presence. Um, and really, I hope that this uh, what actually happened—the coda to all of this puts, you know, to rest all these arguments about the need for corporate handouts because they, you're right, that deal in New York got killed. And what happened? Amazon moved there anyway without the tax breaks because they wanted to, you know, have employees in New York and they wanted to, you know, have space for their company. So... I guess we didn't need to be giving away billions and billions of dollars because they just did it anyway. You know, if a company is one of the most powerful in the world, you probably don't need to be offering them publicly subsidized, taxpayer subsidized uh, handouts. So yes, I completely agree with uh, with you on on that. And yeah, I don't know if there were other um, mayors. I think the job of mayor of a big city is it makes it hard to be a progressive, not to you know write not not to give these people, whether it's, you know, Mayor Lightfoot here, previously Mayor Emanuel or de Blasio or even Bloomberg in New York, not to, you know, let them off the hook, but once you're in that administrative position, um, it's more difficult. It's hard to think of many examples. Obviously we have Harold Washington here decades ago, but it's hard to think of real, you know, progressive uh, mayors in recent history that have run these big cities. Even Eric Garcetti in New York, people have, you know, tons of, uh, complaints about how uh he handled that role. So, um I think we need a new model. I'd love to see it. I mean LA. LA. Yeah, well, LA.
3: No, Eric Garcetti in LA. Go exactly. ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, but maybe we'll see it in uh Chicago in uh 2023. We'll see. All right, before we get to there,
3: I want you to uh take a deeper dive in what you said. I wrote it down. Uh the job of mayor makes it harder to be a progressive. Yeah. Uh and this is something I've been wrestling with for a long time explain what you meant by that.
1: Well, you're in a position where you're managing these massive bureaucracies for one. And so I think that rather than being able to kind of lead the way on legislating, usually people that are thrown into that position are trying to just kind of handle crises and they face massive pressure because for one thing, there's always this Um, fear of capital flight and that's what um, is always invoked is that okay you want to do this you want to you want to you know raise progressive taxes you want to do a financial transaction well guess what you know all the corporate money that provides the tax base and all these jobs they're all going to leave so you know you can't do that right And, and so that constricts it. a lot of that I think is just fear that comes with the institution itself. I don't think it's necessarily borne out. I mean, if a, you know, trading company is based in New York, what are they going to do? Move to Wyoming where they have lower tax rates or something? We just haven't seen that. So I don't think there is much evidence, but that fear is pumped into people. I think as soon as they enter into those offices and it changes their outlook and their approach and what they think is, um, politically feasible. So that's basically what I mean. I mean, I I'm sure there's plenty of other examples. I haven't worked in a mayor's office, so I don't, you know, know. I don't haven't seen all those pressures, but that's certainly what I've heard from people that have worked closely with um, administrations and different cities across the country.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. That's a, the issue that, that fear of capital flight uh, is always stoked. Uh, I, I noticed this uh, to a certain degree with uh, mayor Ram, And he was never a progressive, never a lefty. He utterly hates the left in the Democratic Party. I I can't even call him a self-hating lefty because he was never a lefty. Uh, But he he experienced a part of this phenomenon, the crisis, the day-to-day operations of running a big city or being the person in charge of everything that happens in a big city. I don't think he anticipated that and it overwhelmed him, particularly when it came to crime and to murders. Uh, Mayor Rahm, when he came to Chicago was going to use Chicago to brand, build his brand. And so that was going to be like bring NATO to town to make Chicago an international city, cut all these deals with, uh, uh, major corporations to have them move to Chicago so he could look like a mover and shaker and build his Rolodex, uh, beat up the Chicago Teachers Union so he could send the message that he's a Democrat who's not afraid uh, to take on the left. These are the things that Mayor Rahm was going to use Chicago for. Uh, and then suddenly, all of a sudden, he's being held accountable and responsible for murders that took place in neighborhoods he never cared about. And he didn't know how to deal with that. And that's part of the struggle of Mayor Rahman in that first four years uh, that ultimately led to um, him burying the Laquan McDonald, uh, the video of the McT- Laquan McDonald murder. So I see your point. It's also the issue of how to deal with uh, the realities day to day. And I think where Bill, Bill de Blasio, another stumbling point was he never figured out how to deal with the issue of Uh, police and the black community. And uh, he got into a fight early on. I don't know if you remember this with the police union in New York city, got ugly after, and then he began to move right to try to repair damage and win over police officers who he was never going to win over in a million years. Anyway, your thoughts on all that.
1: He, they famously turned their backs on him at a, at an event in mass, which was just a striking image, you know, of these police turning away from him. I think he had some real early stumbles. There was also a whole kind of scandal about him being late to all these events or even missing public events and everything. And it really gave him a bad reputation among some sectors of the city, like the police union that do hold a lot of influence and power. Um, and I think we see that reflected a little bit here too. I mean, in that, you know, Mayor Lightfoot is not beloved by the chicago police department and yet she is making all these overtures to protect and support them and um really not be in conflict and i think we saw a similar thing in new york where you're right they were never he was never going to win over the support of you know the rank and file police uh officers nypd officers there and they still really don't like bill de blasio but he Changed his whole, you know, he ran against stop and frisk. That's one of the reasons he won the mayorship, um, is because he was going to end that practice. And while that officially ended, clearly, you know, racist policing is still very alive and well in uh, in New York. So I think, for me, I think there's this bigger question of people in these positions they want to retain as much power as possible. And we won't, we don't have to get into the elected school board fight here, but I think that's another example where you know, you want being in that position, you want to have control, you want to shape what comes out of, uh, you know, the offices, you want to have control over the narratives. But that means you're responsible for all these things, too. And just like Rahm Emanuel became responsible for actions of the Chicago Police Department, because it's overseen by the mayor's office, that's going to be true with education, if you keep, you know, the control of the you know, education department under the mayor's office. I don't see why these mayors wouldn't want there to be more community control because then there's some more accountability and it doesn't all fall on that, you know, and I think that that's another um, area of pressure that falls on um, people that are in these positions. Not Again, not to let them off the hook, but I do think that that's, you know, more of a structural issue in how um, these offices are run.
3: Well, I can tell you right now, since you just raised the issue, like the school board, it's on my mind a lot these days. I just think that uh, in Chicago, the notion of how we run a city is to have all the power vested in the all-powerful mayor, as I like to jokingly call it, the all-powerful mayor who controls absolutely everything. So we feel secure as a people because there's never a moment when that all powerful mayor isn't looking out for our best interest. That's kind of like the mindset Chicagoans have had going back to days of Richard J. Daly, uh, give all the power to the mayor and, uh, it, we had that moment of democracy in the 80s when Harold Washington was elected and all the white aldermen and the city council organizes one or most of the white aldermen organizes one to oppose them for purely racial matters. So it was all the wrong reasons for having democracy. And yet we had something of democracy when that was over. It was like the powers that be in the city of Chicago. Miles came to the conclusion. Well, we're not going to do that again. We're just going to give everything to Mayor Daley. And 20 odd years later, bowing down to Mayor Daley, followed by bowing down to Mayor Rahm and bowing down. to That's just like the mindset in this city, Miles. And you grew up in this city, you went to public schools. So I can remember, Miles, I don't know if we ever shared it. I remember when your generation was first starting to articulate its political views. And I don't know if you were the one of the kids that went before the Chicago Board of Education but it was your classmates at Whitney Young who were protesting the real dumbass testing policies that the board of education Chico and Vallis had implemented at mayor Daly's request some really dumb multiple choice test and i remember a bunch of Whitney Young students going before uh the board of ed and they, And it was so obvious that the Board of Ed was merely a rubber stamp of the mayor on this. And they weren't going to listen to anything you said in a million years. You get what I'm saying? And they lectured you. "Ah, You guys are the beneficiaries of this testing system. That's how you got to that great school. Now, shut up and go back to the classroom. That's kind of the attitude. Go ahead,
1: Mike. Well, they continued to do that with the school closures. You remember? I mean, they did. uh, They had all these public meetings. The school board did um and it was overwhelmingly people didn't want to see these schools closed um you know back under under mayor emmanuel when they closed 49 50 schools um, and yeah, they just went ahead and did it anyway. It's just the, it is just a rubber stamp. And it's almost worse because than just not having public input, because then it just depresses people's thought of what is even possible, because they get, um, it's a fiction that they have actual influence over these supposed representatives of them, um, because they're just going to do what the mayor says uh, anyway. So that's, I mean, the argument for the elected school board is at least there's some accountability, you know, that you, know, that you can take somebody out of office and replace them with somebody. And, and they'll have to be more responsive than to the public versus only having to be responsible, responsive to one person, the mayor, which is how it uh, exists now. And yeah, I mean, shout out, actually, my brother uh, August camp Lassen was one of the uh, students at Whitney young who, who intentionally flunked. I forget the name of that uh, ridiculous test. They were, they were giving us a million standardized tests back then. Um, but yeah, it made some national news and some, Um, some waves i mean it was a the, the the fight to have some uh fairness and uh representation for the actual student body and you know body politic in uh chicago public schools has been going on for a very very long time and we're just starting to you know be see the light of clawing some power away from the the mayor's office on some of this stuff
3: no i uh Yeah. A little shout out to August. I did not realize uh, your brother was a pivotal. I remember that fight. I wrote about it. I interviewed some kids. Maybe I interviewed your brother. I don't know. It was many years ago. I can't remember the names of the kids. Uh, But to me, the symbolism of that fight where you had some students who were actually paying attention to what was going on around them uh, and took the time to come and protest it. And the shock and dismay of the board of education, just like the, the people in the city, like their the general attitude was, how dare you question this policy? This is the policy of the mayor. This is where we're heading as, as a, a society. And then, of course, they like threw out all those dictates basically over the years. You know, They were flunking kids left and right, uh, Miles, during your time. They were just they, the, the policy of the city was like, they were going to hold kids accountable for their test scores. And so if you didn't have a certain test score, then you had to stay back. And uh, so they were. They were proud of the number of kids they were dumping in the summer school, Most, mostly sent to schools, by the way, they didn't have air conditioning. So they put these kids in these classrooms. they're sweating like horses. <laughs> they call this great education. People complain about it. It's like, shut up. the mayor knows. So this is why I have a hard time. you got me going here, miles. This is why I have a hard time, you know, joining the chorus, denouncing a, uh, an elected school board as though it would it's been educational paradise for the young scholars of Chicago public schools for the last 40 years. I, I think most people just have their eyes closed miles when it comes to Chicago. Sometimes, you know what I'm saying? They're so afraid of what might come the chaos that might come from. If we do things, God forbid any differently than we're currently doing them. So let's just keep plowing ahead.
1: Exactly. And if anything, you know, we've come through just this horrid year of uh, a pandemic. And it's really, I think, made us rethink a lot of what or hopefully has made us rethink a lot of what has been normal and what is, you know, we've come to uh, rest on. And I think the fight over um, reopening the schools is a good example of, you know, we need to have some collective voice of the people that are living under the conditions that are set by you know, oftentimes unelected officials, and hopefully we'll, we'll learn that lesson and we won't just rush to return back to normal, although you're right, all of the forces of stasis are, you know, invoking, you know, we gotta, we can't change anything because it'll, you're right, lead to some kind of anarchy or chaos. It's like, we just live through kind of anarchy and chaos, and maybe that, just, maybe we should make some changes in how we think about, you know, public policy and give people a little bit more voice, a little bit more say and over how they spend. And, uh their lives whether it's at work or whether it's at school I mean I think that that hopefully is one lesson we can take from this past year i
3: I hope you're right and i'm gonna w- withhold a temptation to go on another riff about the elected school board and I'll I'll, I'll I'll switch gears by just saying uh my and I will be returning to the hideout for first tuesday I'm gonna take this moment to plug this uh july 6th yes the hideout will be uh We're coming out from the pandemic. It's been a long, long time. We're going to do an outdoor show, and it's going to be dedicated to an elected school board. So we have people uh, on both sides of the issue. Delia Ramirez uh, has agreed to come. Uh, She'll be there. She's the House sponsor of the elected school board bill. So anyway, I just want to give that. Uh, a shout out to that uh, event and I'll be railing. <laughs> I'll be continuing miles. I'll be some old guy on a bench and a, an old socialist, in know, on a park bench at age 90, really about the city. I can't stop myself. All right. uh, Let's move on uh, to national and close with a discussion of what you called the folly of bipartisanship. I told you before the show I was going to steal the concept, claim it as my own and not give you any credit. But I just couldn't pull it off. My conscience got to me. So that is a Miles uh, coined phrase, the folly of uh, bipartisanship. Uh, I agree with it a wholeheartedly. And here's the full Miles quote, the folly of bi- bipartisanship while Republicans plot to take away democracy. I was, Miles, I was going to steal that and use it. Nobody would know that you came up with it, but my conscience got to it. Uh, sort of uh, go on a riff about this, Miles, What you're uh, what you're getting at, the folly of bipartisanship while Republicans plot to take away democracy.
1: If you're too honest of a journalist, Ben. It's <laughs> no problem. Yeah,
3: I know.
1: <laughs> they just picked it up. I, I think we're stuck in a weird, you know, uh, derogam period right now where we are, you know, there's been this massive piece of legislation passed, the American Rescue Plan. And um, there's a lot of backslapping and excitement about how you know, we, we were able to pass a pretty major piece of legislation. Um, that would actually benefit working people in this country. but a lot of us thought, okay, well, this is we're gonna you know rev the engines here and get going and start passing some of the actual Democratic uh, agenda, which is expansive and deals with issues ranging from you know healthcare and education to, of course, voting rights and infrastructure. And what do we see? They, it, we, it, it's now June, and they're still squabbling over you know how pay fors and the and the Republicans. Joe Biden uh, presented two bills part, making up his infrastructure bill that would total about five trillion dollars, and the Republicans are offering about two to three hundred, uh, you know, uh, billion dollars. That's in, that's how do you you know that's not a legitimate negotiation. That's just them trying to um, run out the clock basically until that there's no more. Um, political appetite or political will to do this, uh, these type of major policies. And then hopefully by 2022, if it's still just more obstruction, much like we saw in the first term of uh, Obama, then the Republicans will ride a wave under, you know, people that are unsatisfied with inaction in Washington, even though they're the ones that are, you know, putting us into this position. And, and, and Democrats are falling for it. I mean, that's the... Um, biggest issue now I, I know there's probably people that think there's a strategy that's going on and I know there is you know Bernie Sanders for example who's the chair of the budget committee is already putting together a reconciliation bill which is the way that they passed Democrats passed the rescue plan um, that wouldn't require Republican support that they could just pass on a party party line vote so that is happening. But that's kind of, you know, Bernie's backup plan that he's trying to get Biden and the Democratic leadership on board to just go ahead with. And others are, too, of course, Pramila Jayapal in the House, other progressives. Um, But what do we see publicly is still just, you know, trying to negotiate with these Republicans who've made clear that uh, much like, you know, McConnell said under Obama, their number one goal was to make him a one term president. They, They didn't succeed at that, but they did succeed in, you know. Uh, stopping his agenda from passing. They, he, he said that he's 100% focused on stopping Biden's agenda. That's what Mitch McConnell said. We should take him at his word, you know, and that's what these Republicans are telling their own audiences back home. Is like they're going to Washington to stop, you know, the socialist Joe Biden from radicalizing America. And so they're, you know, opposing him. Well, then that's, they're, they're not, you know, negotiating in good faith and we should accept that and move on, you know, and use the levers of of power that clearly are available because the Democrats, as I said, just did it by passing that rescue plan. And so if you could do that, do that for infrastructure and end this filibuster so that we can actually protect voting rights in this country, because Lord knows the Republicans have made clear their uh, goal is to rip to shreds any last remaining um, you know, threads of, of, of democracy in this country. And they're, they're having success doing that right now. So um, I know that there's even arguments within the Democratic caucus over the best way to approach that. But we should not expect that Republicans are going to come to the table um, and actually try to do anything to protect voting rights when they are the ones that are trying to take away those rights.
3: Yeah, no, I, I, this is a point I continually make in a show, uh, is that suppressing the vote and taking away voting rights and making it more difficult for Democrats to vote is the key for Republicans staying in power. So the notion that there would be bipartisan support for a voting rights bill is ridiculous because clearly their strategy is to go in the exact opposite direction to hold on to power. And, uh, that's why I had a laugh. It's just, At the Republicans in the state of Illinois who decry the power play by Democrats here, uh, to. They're suing them, right? Yeah, they're suing them. I'll take it at the federal court. You know, that's the other thing. What phonies. You know, they're always talking about tort reform, which means limit your ability to go to court. Like you you go to a store and they sell you a, a coffee pot. The thing blows up and it burns you and scars you. And so you file you call Jim Coogan or some lawyer like Jim Coogan. You file a lawsuit and they say you're destroying the economy with your needless lit, litigation. And what's the first thing they do when they got a gripe when they lost? The little cry babies that they are. Run, run, run to federal court. Look for some Judicial lackey of Donald Trump, some appointee of Donald Trump to bail them out. Miles, the Republicans, (laughs) they are just such frauds, man. Unbelievable frauds, the Republican Party. You mentioned something uh, I took notes on. I want to get your thoughts on this. Bernie is uh, as the head of the budget committee, uh, is sculpting a reconciliation bill. How serious is Do you think uh, Joe Biden takes Bernie? Maybe it's not the way to phrase it. Uh, How how much uh, sway do you think Bernie Sanders has with Joe Biden? Do you think he's somebody that Joe Biden relies on, turns to, depends on, listens to? You know, the way, I don't know, maybe Joe Manchin has that kind of access. Uh, I've seen all these Republicans get shepherded into the White House to meet and negotiate uh, with uh, Joe Biden. Do you think Bernie Sanders has that kind of access with Joe Biden.
1: I I don't know exactly the level of access. I mean, I'm sure they're in regular conversation, and I know that both Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin are part of the small group of uh, legislators that Biden does meet with fairly regularly. It's a group of I think eight or so. Um, I think it's both senators and House members that he talks with. Democratic caucus that he talks about, about um, strategy and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, he's a pole in American politics right now. Like he represents uh, not just a progressive movement, but also a a whole uh, group of legislators now that are on Capitol Hill that are you know much like you know earlier in the conversation we were talking about the loneliness of AOC and you know the loneliness of Carlos Rosa for a long time Bernie Sanders was pretty lonely there in um, in Washington and now it's not just that his ideas have won the day but all there's all these you know other people that are willing to uh, really go out on a limb and 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 fight for all kinds of policy priorities that animate the left-wing platform, you know, in the 21st century, things like Medicare for All and um, Green New Deal, as we discussed. Uh, There's people like Ilhan Omar and Jamal Bowman, all these other folks. So I think that Biden looks at Bernie as somebody who is, you know, a player who's obviously he's been in Washington a long time. He has the budget committee. He's a serious politician who's had this massive success with that American rescue plan in terms of structuring that and helping to shepherd it through uh, Congress. So, yeah, I think that that's very clear. But do I think that Biden like shares Bernie's politics? No, I don't think that, that I don't think that that has has changed. But in general, I think Biden has shown himself throughout his career to, if nothing else, move with the political winds, you know, as they change. And I think he understands right now that just looking at the polling, you know, the, the left's agenda is the popular one. And the more that he leans into that, I think the more political and electoral dividends that he and other Democrats up and down the ballot are going to see. So do I think he... Thinks about things that way. I I I think he wouldn't have Bernie, you know, in such a high profile position if he didn't realize that at least there's, um, you know, there's a lot of power in what he represents. Not just him, you know, as a person. He's uh, famously said he doesn't have much tolerance for bullshit. You know, that's Bernie doesn't like play the Washington game of backslapping and all that stuff, which Biden was all about in the Senate. Um, he's a kind of a different creature. Um, but he also is clearly knows what he's doing and is able to have success. I mean, we'll look back, I think, at um, Bernie Sanders as one of the really most transformative um, uh, politicians in, in modern American history.
3: Yeah. No, that, uh, when you said that, uh, Bernie doesn't do the bullshit, it just flashed in my mind that, that classic Bernie meme from, uh, the inauguration where he's sitting alone all by himself, uh, and listening and he's huddled against the cold. He's wearing those mittens. <laughs> uh, and it just sums up Bernie Sanders. You know what I mean? It's just like, he's not with a, uh, he's not part of the crowd. You know, he looks, he looks like he's not afraid to look a little dorky. And I said as a guy who looks totally dorky, so don't take it wrong, Bernie Sanders. And, uh, you know, he's not worried about if he's cool or he's just <laughs> he looks a little frumpy and you know, he's he's all about business. Uh so I'm I'm hoping Miles uh, that Joe Biden listens to you. I think we're almost at the state where it's like put up or shut up time with Joe Biden and uh, no more footsies with the Republicans. i am be talking about this with David Ferris tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he's got a lot of feelings on this one. Roosevelt University political science professor comes on the show all the time, always urging the Democrats to be more forceful. And I, Miles, we're, we're it's not just that we're heading into campaign season uh, and we need to uh, hold on to the House to, because the Republican Party is so freaking insane. It's scary. What would happen if the Republicans took back the House and the Senate uh, and then ushered in, you know, the commandant, Trump? Uh, but it's just I think the country could use uh, the programs that uh, like an infrastructure program. And I just I watch the debate and I see the, the Democrats just drifting right. It's just like a replay uh, all the time, just like with the notion that somehow or other uh, unemployment benefits are keeping people out of the economy. This argument that's coming out now, and that's why restaurants can't get people to work in them, it's just totally overlooking the impact of closing the borders and immig- the, the cutoff of immigration on what have on the restaurant industry, or uh, it just the, the whole the way the less run industry is heavily dependent on tipping as opposed to just giving someone an honest wage, all these other factors out the window, the Democrats are sort of creeping over to that Republican side of things. So I think it's put up or shut up time miles with the, with the Democrats, like show play your hand and show what you stand for and uh, let the chips fall with they may your thoughts on that.
1: I agree. I think there's uh, where, I think we're past that time. Actually. I think it's, you know, that, as I said, that the Republicans have made very clear what their strategy is. And it's not just to say we're not going to negotiate. It's to falsely claim that they're negotiating while, meanwhile, just trying to gum up the works and, for one thing, get Democrats to negotiate against themselves by doing things like, you know, they've already kind of agreed to change some of the, you know, not include uh increasing the corporate tax rate, for example, as a way to pay for infrastructure. That's one of the things that Biden supposedly agreed to already in his discussion. So you get Democrats to water down their own stuff, and you you know wait out the clock, and then you back away and don't support it anyway. And then you leave Democrats with a worse bill, and with all the you know political liability of having waited so long. I mean, I think that's one of the things we saw with uh, Obamacare, you know, was negotiated with Republicans, but then they didn't end up supporting it anyway. And I think that the American Rescue Plan, the, you know, the COVID relief bill is a good example of a better way and a different way to do things. Just forget mm-hmm. about that. And then just pass a big bill that's really popular that people will like. The infrastructure bill is crazy popular. The one that Biden, you know, proposed, is he could, we're going to fund childcare, we're going to you know, give some paid leave, we're going to, you know, invest in actual physical infrastructure, they're going to create a civilian climate corps, you know, kind of a New Deal-like program to get young people into the workforce to actually build the uh, green energy systems that we're going to need to combat climate change. These things are really popular, and the more you negotiate against yourself and just wait out the clock, yeah, I think that you're, you're just shooting yourself in the foot um, electorally. And some people really get that. I think that's why you see there's a big, you know, push in the, um, progressive, uh, the congressional progressive caucus to do just that, to stop, you know, this charade of making nice with the Republicans. But again, I think that that's part of Biden's nature and how he, um, thinks about how policy is made. He thinks that it's better if it's bipartisan. It's too bad because if you remember, Back a few months ago, they were saying, well, it is the, the rescue plan was bipartisan because Republican voters supported it. And that's how kind of the White House was saying they thought about bipartisanship. I was really excited by that because I was like, oh, well, if that's what they mean by bipartisanship, then yeah, we just pass a whole, whole whole host of progressive stuff that actual Republican voters like. But instead, it seems like now they're getting back to bipartisanship means trying to get yeah, Mitch McConnell to support an <laughs> infrastructure bill. Like, no, no, that's not ever going to happen. So, yeah. The folly
3: of bipartisanship while Republicans plot to take away democracy, Miles and said it, and it's so true. Miles, uh, before we let you go, anything you want to promote from in these times that people should know about?
1: Yeah, we've got some great uh, stuff up right now. Uh, check out in these times.com. There's a um, really good story by this, um, Jim Q on the recent analyses that were done around the uh, stimulus checks that showed the massive benefits to um, people's lives, both to their mental health and to their you know physical personal health and financial stability of getting these uh, government checks. You know, we had twelve hundred, then six hundred, then fourteen, and he basically makes a case that if we want to you know have a, a good effect on our society, we should just keep doing this. You know, we should keep. Uh, providing financial support to people who need it, and um, I think it makes a really convincing case about more need, the need for more government intervention, both to lower poverty and to increase health, and doing it kind of from, he does it from an economic perspective, basically saying with the, it's an investment, and the payoff is way more than the cost, you know, and everybody screams, how are we going to pay for it? You can't pay for it. Well, look at all the costs that we're incurring by people having to go to the emergency room. Look at all the costs that we're incurring by, you know, people can't, um, uh, Walmart employees can't afford healthcare and they can't afford to buy foods. They're on food stamps, they're on government programs. There's huge costs to that that we could eliminate by just um, providing people support and raising wages. So um, so definitely check that out. And um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Miles K. Lassen. And I'll be publishing more stuff all the time. And you sign up, I really recommend people sign up for the In These Times newsletter because uh, it goes out every Saturday, and it's just a rundown of all the stuff we publish uh, online each week. Um, and it's a lot of good stuff. So you can sign up for that again at inthesetimes.com.
3: All right, very good. Uh, Miles, thanks so much for taking the time to come on, and uh, maybe I'll see you tonight at the White Sox game. Right? Yeah, go
1: Sox. No, no, go, go Dolphins. <laughs> that
0: That would be
3: the not the Miami Dolphins the football team but the Whitney Young Dolphins Uh, Miles is a proud graduate of Whitney Young High School as is Michelle Obama they were not in the same graduating class a lot of years in between uh, but they both went to to the same high school Miles Conflason thank you very much and I also want to thank the other Miles Miles Porter for doing such a great job trying to explain the intricacies of cheating in baseball the one sport in the world that loves cheating Miles Porter did a great job, as he always does. And of course, I want to thank the man and the, the legend, the pride of joy in Alton, Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. And as Miles Kempflasson and Miles Porter will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise, take it out of Petty Cash. See you tomorrow, everybody.